A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Yehuda Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by OU's Teach Coalition, who is encouraging everyone to go ahead and vote, turning out in all states, elections will be close in the voting now. It's already early voting now, and election day is right upon us, November 8th. Um, and uh, for midterms, Governor Values Teach Coalition and his network of thousands of activists just like you are urging you and everyone you know to go out and vote. There's historic turnout at early voting all over in New York and other places, many religious neighborhoods. It's good to see that many are voting and even early voting, but more is needed. And now it's down to the wire to Election Day. And uh, these episodes that I'm doing now in honor of this uh, election, midterms, season, governor elections, all the elections, is examining the Jewish story of pushing frontiers on the American landscape Today we're going to do a more fun episode of Jews and Sports. But before that, it's always good to be a little dark. So historians in general are awful at predicting the future. We're much better at analyzing the past. And one thing we know from the past is that no form of government has ever lasted forever. Uh, there's no exceptions to that rule in world history. So there's no reason to believe that democracy would be an exception to this rule. So the assumption is, is that it's not going to last forever. Of course, it's not possible to know when, when it'll end or how or what's going to be the next form of governance. That's impossible to know. At least historians can't know it. But right now, democracy is here and the ability to vote is here. And it won't be here forever. That's pretty much a certainty. So now is the time to make a difference. You don't want future historians analyzing the religious community of the United States of the 21st century and having them ponder the fact uh, that they're trying to figure out that this community could have made an impact on their own future of their community by voting when they had a chance, but they didn't. Why not? Um, so it's better to utilize the opportunity. Imagine having your grandson over for Shabbos in half a century telling him how he used to be able to vote and have an influence and he's like, wow, that's amazing. And he innocently asks, so did you vote? Um, so you definitely want to go out out there. It's not enough that the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites go out and vote. It's important for everyone to encourage others as well. 
anyone in your social circles, communities, families, to raise awareness and to appreciate the responsibility. It's not important who one votes for as long as you vote. For help, contact the voter hotline of uh, Teach Coalition, 646-459-5162, or check out their website at teachcoalition.org slash vote. This episode is going to examine a bit of a lighter side of American Jewish history, and a bit of less of an orthodox religious side, not really anything to do with orthodoxy or religion. Um, so it's a bit different, something fresh, different perspective than usual. It's a bit more of Jews and sports. It's not just entertaining. It's, it's actually an interesting history. It's entertaining. It's fun. It's light. But it's more than that, I think. It actually provides quite an insight into the story of Jewish integration into the American landscape, uh, the Jewish-American story in general, and especially Jewish-American identity. So it's an important story as well, and I think that this is a very, very useful angle to examine it from through sports. Um, baseball, I did ba on baseball way back then, um, quite a couple of years ago. Uh, this is going to touch on baseball for part of it, but we'll try to get to boxing and some other stuff as well. Um, it's interesting that Abe Khan, the legendary um, owner and editor uh, of the Fovritz Yiddishist socialist uh, newspaper of the one of the you know, largest newspapers at the time of the immigrant generation at the turn of the century. Um, and he was the editor and owner for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years for a long, long time. Um, and he was this Yiddishist socialist. He once wrote an editorial calling on the Jewish immigrant immigrant parents of the Lower East Side and the other immigrant neighborhoods to encourage their children to play baseball. Uh, he's talking to the Jewish immigrants, obviously, and he says it's going to be good for Americanization. It's going to be good to prepare them for American life, for the American corporate world, for for to be workers, to good teamwork. Um, so so it, it, it even comes from, from there. And so baseball is seen as a goal for the immigrant generation in the process of Americanization. Now, Jews as athletes uh, is a bit of an anomaly because there's this stereotype that Jews are weak, uh, non-athletic, they're not, they're not just as much in sports, so all, everyone tries to find those Jews who were good in sports and did make it in the athletes. And in Israel, I think there's at least two or three museums. There's the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in Netanya. There's a Jewish sports museum in Tel Aviv and all kinds of things. We try to find the ones that were. Um, you know, it's more typical to have Jews as physicists and winning Nobel Prizes and economists and buying up real estate and nursing homes. So Jews definitely were always bigger fans of sports than athletes themselves. And that's something to keep in mind, because fans are as much part of the game as the players, maybe even more. So I want to focus, before I get to, to the game itself, so to focus on the aspect of fans for a minute, because the most famous fan in baseball history was a strange and rather eccentric Jewish woman named Hilda Chester. Um, Hilda Chester was born on the Lower East Side uh, in Manhattan. She was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, um, and she would go to Ebbets Field. She would go to games. She would go work with the peanuts at the concession stands, and she had this extremely loud voice and this thick Brooklynese accent and this 
complete allegiance and dedication to to the Dodgers. She was very well known in Ebbetsfield and beyond throughout Brooklyn, but she became more famous after her first heart attack because her doctor told her that she can't yell anymore. So there went that, you know, famous Brooklyn voice and, and accent that everyone knew. Instead, she came to Ebbets Field with a frying pan and an iron ladle and made such a racket that everyone knew exactly who she was. The players on the Dodgers, they, she was this, you know, popular uh, fan. She was the most famous fan in, in Ebbets Field. And they, they bought her a brass cowbell as a gift to replace her frying pan and iron ladle. So she used the cowbell and, um, you can hear it if you ever listen to audio or watch uh, um, clips of Brooklyn Dodgers games from before 1957. You can hear that cowbell. She 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 actually eventually received grandstand tickets to from the team. They gave it to her as a gift. But she still sat in the bleachers, and wherever she sat in the bleachers, she would hang up a sign saying, Hilda is here. So again, that's something that everyone saw every game. Hilda is here. Hilda Chester, this Jewish woman. In 1941, she had a second heart attack, and she's in the Jewish Hospital of Brooklyn, and Leo DeRocher and several players of the Dodgers team went ahead and visited her in the hospital. Um, and uh, Ch- Hilda Chester never forgot that. She she respected and liked DeRocher because he had made this visit to the hospital. And even though she had this allegiance to the Dodgers, um, she, you know, kind of shifted over a little bit later on when DeRocher became the manager of the Giants, that so she would go to the polo grounds as well. And she'd be very famous as this fan. And besides for her being a fan of the Dodgers, no one ever knew anything about her. She was very private about her private life. Um, her husband died relatively early. She had one daughter who was brought up in the Brooklyn Hebrew Orphan Asylum. And I find it to be an interesting story because there's a few points. First of all, that that she saw the person, not only the team. As soon as DeRocher went to, because DeRocher had visited her in the hospital. And, the, and he goes to the Giants, so she ends up going more to the polo grounds and not being exclusively a Dodgers fan. So it was more about the person than to the team. The second point was that I found interesting with the fo- following Walter O'Malley's infamous moving of the Dodgers to California in 1957, when the world collapsed for all Brooklynites in general. So she and all others like her disappeared from public view. Uh, what does her story say about Jewish fans in general, people from Brooklyn in general, and dedication to the Dodgers in particular? It's a good question because there was this this some something of an identity. It was a form of identity for many of the Jews and and of course non-Jews, the general population in that uh, generation. Um, so so it's just you know she brings out and even though she was obviously a bit of an eccentric, it brings out an interesting part of the story. The next thing I want to examine in baseball is also not about the game itself, but someone who impacted the game almost more than anything else. It's a, someone, a Jewish guy, by the name of Marvin Miller, who was a labor organizer, he was a union man, and uh, Jews were always very prominent in labor. But before I get to how Jews were prominent in labor and how his this this Jewish fellow uh, uh, impacted the game, so it's, it's, he's probably one of the most important ba- people in baseball history. Um, no less a person than Red Barber said that... Uh, 
as far as people changing the game of baseball, you have Babe Ruth, of course, Jackie Robinson for breaking the color line, and and Marvin Miller. And I'd agree with that assessment. That's uh, his historic contribution to the game is that he impacted and he changed the game probably on the same par as the other two and more than anyone else. Um, Jews were always big in the labor movement, um, in, in workers' rights, in Europe, in Russia, in other areas of Europe, in the United States, in Israel, uh, socialism in the early days of the state, even pre-state. Um, this is a legacy of Jewish labor socialism in Europe. Uh, it's affected because of the anti-Tsar, the radicals, revolutionaries. There's Russian socialism, Russian communism, the Bund, which is this Yiddishist Jewish socialism, Zionist socialism, um, workers' rights. This became, I mentioned before, Abe Khan, right? He's a perfect example of that, of the forwards, uh, that socialist. The Jews were always huge in, in socialism and labor and fighting for the workers' workers' rights. Um, and uh, uh, leaders of the workers' uh, uh, rights movement in the United States was Jews like Samuel Gompers, for sure, and even later on, Sidney Hillman, um, who was head of the uh, textile, uh, the, the Garment Workers Union, I forget, a few of the, a few of the workers' unions that S- S- Sidney Hillman led for decades, so, so he actually started off his life as a student of the yeshiva in Slabatka. Uh, before he left, the Yiddish guy became a radical and had to run away from Russia during the 1905 uh, revolution. So Jews serve as a prominent role throughout history in, in, in labor. So Marvin Miller's story goes right into that. He's born in the Bronx. He grew up in Flatbush in Brooklyn, right near Ebbets Field, and was a Dodgers fan. His father worked in textiles on the Lower East Side, was a union guy. His mother was a teacher and was part of the teachers' union. He goes ahead and gets a degree in economics and emerges as a labor leader in the National Labor Board during World War II. He works in the United Auto Workers, United Steel Workers. He was a professional labor organizer. And, um, and then he joins Major League Baseball to be the head of the, pl- the players' union. And he completely transformed the game. He essentially freed the players from the owners. He didn't just raise their salaries, he made them, he emancipated the players. It stopped being an owner's game, it became a player's game. He changed the way the game is played, he changed the competition, he transformed the business of baseball. Um, He was the head of the players' union from 1966 to 1982, and the first real head, he was the one who first really organized the players. The owners controlled the players until then, they basically owned them. It was almost like like slavery uh, to a certain extent. Uh, he once said, um, Marvin Miller once said that the last emancipated workers in the United States were baseball players. Um, he taught them that human capital is commodity, which they're selling to the owners, and the owners have to pay a price for that. Um, he got them to do to sign um, collective bargaining, arbitration, pensions, new contracts. But the main thing he changed was the reserve clause. From the 1880s, the owners had this reserve clause in the contract, which forced players to be on the same team their entire career. It forced the salaries to be artificially low, and, um, and, uh, and he was able to get rid of that, which took quite a bit of time. Um, in fact, Jews were in, involved with it at different times. Uh, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale tried it in 1966. It didn't work out. But uh, a big story happened in 1970 when a baseball player 
was obviously not Jewish, Kurt Flood, um, and uh, he 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 decided he's gonna he he uh, was not interested in being traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies. So he sues the baseball commissioner Bowie Kun um, with Miller's backing, and Miller said he'll pay for legal counsel, even though he was sure he would lose because he said he was willing to take one take one to pave for the future of baseball. Um, and, and Kurt Flood was willing to take that as uh, he decided to, 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 even though he knew he would probably lose, um, but it would pave the way for a better future for baseball players. So it was an interesting Jewish scenario because obviously, like I said, Kurt Flood was not Jewish, but Miller uh, was, and, um, and the la- his lawyer, uh, Kurt Flood's lawyer, was, uh, was a very famous labor lawyer, Supreme Court justice, diplomat in the UN, Arthur Goldberg. And um, so that that was the that was his, his his Jewish lawyer and one of the few former players who testified on his behalf, aside from Jackie Robinson, was Hank Greenberg, the Jewish superstar from the Detroit Tigers. So you have the head of the players' union was Jewish, the lawyer was Jewish, and uh, the expert testimony was Jewish as well. Um, so it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and he lost. But uh, that kind of broke, a, you know, first crack in the reserve clause. Catfish Hunter, a couple of years later in Oakland, becomes a free agent, goes to the Yankees. And then the final story is solved by arbitration the next year with Andy uh, Messersmith and Dave McNally. And they become the first real uh, free agents. And the reserve clause dies and there's no more uh, slavery in baseball. So he, you know, he built this union. It was considered the strongest union in the country, even decades later. His successor, Donald Fair, uh, at the Players' Union was also Jewish, and he had to deal with the owner's collusion scandal in the mid-'80s. That's another story. Miller lived a long life. He died at the age of 95 and was inducted into the Hall of Fame just a couple of years ago. So it's interesting how Jewish labor legacy and socialism history from the Bund and from Russia and from that... Uh, going to the uh, unions in America eventually leaves its imprint on baseball as well, of all places. Uh, one of the places that Jews were very prominent in sports throughout uh, for a for a very sp- I'm sorry not throughout it at all it was a very specific uh, time period was in boxing. A very surprising aspect of Jews in sports is their prominence in this very aggressive, very violent, very physical sport as boxing. In fact, one of the first Jewish books I read when I was a kid was All for the Boss, about the great life of Rabbi Yaakov Yasef Herman, and I was fascinated by the fact that he was a boxing fan. He loved going to boxing matches and even brought his date there, the famous uh, Mrs. Uh, Herman, Adel uh, Herman, uh, and he brought her to a boxing match because he thought she would love it and enjoy it just like he did. Uh, and and she fainted. She didn't like it at all, and he stopped uh, going to boxing matches. Also, one of the other early books I read back in those days, about 25, 30 years ago, was Lieutenant Birnbaum. And he wasn't just a boxing fan. Uh, he grew up in Brownsville in poverty. His father was a boxer, a professional boxer. And then later a trainer, referee. So in the immigrant generation, you see, even very religious people were into boxing, were part of it, were either fans or players or in it. The golden age of Jewish boxing was in the 1920s and 1930s. After the war, it basically disappeared, so that in in that respect, it was quite normative for second-generation immigrant communities of that time, not only Jews, 
to gravitate towards boxing to make it financially. You have to understand that during the Great Depression, immigrant families uh, struggling, they couldn't send their kids to college. They couldn't go into the profession. It just wasn't feasible options for the most part. And therefore, boxing was just one of those many uh, professions that seemed easier. You seemed able to be able to make it. And the similar trends existed in Italian, Irish, and German immigrant communities. So Jews were actually not that unique in this regard as uh, at all. It's just amazing that for two decades, the 1920s and 30s, Jews dominated American back, boxing. A third of the fighters, 16% of the champions, um, they, 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 they were the dominant nationality for those two decades. Um, so it's a very interesting analysis of, of why they went in um, to boxing, what, 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 what was it that attracted them, um, and, it was, um, and did it fit in with the Jewish, uh, you know, the stereotype of, of, of the Jew as, um, as weak, as not physical, as not athletic, and were they trying to prove anything? For the most part, they weren't trying to prove anything. They were just, the ones who were in it were in it because it made sense for an immigrant generation, and the people who were fans of it was for the same reason, um, and, uh, and it attracted them at times. Some of the, some of the famous ones include uh, 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 one of them, uh, Benny Leonard. Um, he was a lightweight champion for eight years. He's considered one of the greatest boxers ever. He was raised in the Lower East Side as Benjamin Liner. Um, many of them changed their names uh, during that time. Sometimes it was not to embarrass their parents. Sometimes it was a general uh, uh, trend that uh, an Americanization, you don't want to be a public figure, a sports star, having such a recognizably Jewish name. So both reasons were apparent uh, by many of these people. So this Benjamin Liner, his parents were Gershon and Minnie Liner, and they were religious Jewish immigrants from Russia. His father struggled in a 12-hour-a-day textile job, and he started boxing. This son, uh, um, ben Benjamin Liner, he started boxing to make ends meet, and he changes his name to Benny Leonard. Uh, many of his victories were against other prominent Jewish boxers of that era, such as Eddie Shapiro, Marty Goldman, and others. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, and he's one of the biggest uh, superstars of that time in his weight division. Barney Ross is an even more interesting story. He was born as Beryl Rosofsky in New York. He grew up in Chicago. His parents moved to Chicago. He was a world champion in three weight divisions, which is quite rare in the boxing world. Never had a knockout in 81 fights. Uh, he's one of the greatest boxers ever. His parents were Ichik and Sara Rosofsky. His father was an Orthodox Torah scholar, rabbi from Brisk. Uh, he immigrated from Brisk, and when he lived in Brisk, his father, he enjoyed a relationship with the town's rabbi, Reb Chaim Brisker. Um, and this uh, Rabitchik uh, uh, Rosofsky was a rabbi in Chicago, and he also operated a little vegetable store. And he raises his little barrel, his dove bear, um, as an Orthodox uh, Jew, and he wanted him to become a rabbi as well. He wanted to be him to become a Talmud Chacham. Um, everything changed when when uh, when Dove Bear's father was murdered during a robbery at his vegetable store. His mother suffered a nervous breakdown as a result, and his younger siblings were placed in orphanages. So Dove was on his own at the age of 14. And his goal was to do something, in, to be able to make money, to be able to afford to purchase a home, to be able to reunite his family. His whole world had fallen apart, his family had fallen apart, he wanted to reunite his family. So he abandoned religious life, he started hanging out with the wrong crowd, 
and he engaged in crime for a while. Possibly he was even employed by Al Capone. One of his shady friends during this time was a character, another Jew, named Jack Ruby, later the assassin on live national television of Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of, uh, of uh, President uh, Kennedy. Um, so this, so he he um, he went into um, so now he went to change his name Barney Ross and he went into boxing. In early fights, he'd win prizes, and those prizes he'd pawn and save the money for his family. That's uh, that's you see how dedicated he was to the cause. With his success in the 1930s, he was seen by the Jewish masses as like this Jewish hero, as this Jewish leader, because he was a successful boxer. And this is the 1930s, so there's all this, you know, in the newspapers about Hitler and Nazism and racism, and here's this symbol of Jewish strength and Jewish fighting, and, and he's, he's, he's powerful, he's strong, and it's very, very interesting, and reading about him and, and his biography and, and, and the, the, the Jewish community, how they viewed him. Um, he was viewed by Jews of his day, and to a lesser extent by himself as well. His primary um, ideal was to make money for himself and for his family. But at some point, at some level, it, it, it did affect him himself as well, is that there's this symbolism going on here. So in his story, there are many elements of the Jewish story and Jewish identity as well, American Jewish identity, the American Jewish immigration, the struggles, the challenges, and how things are viewed at that time. So I find it a fascinating angle. During World War II, just to finish off the story of Barney Ross, he joined the Marines. He was actually court-martialed for assaulting a non-com, a non-commissioned officer for making an anti-Semitic remark, but he was acquitted at the military trial at his court-martial, and he was dispatched to the Pacific Theater. And he saw combat during the Battle of Guadalcanal, and he got wounded. And he earned a silver star for bravery in saving others and engaging the enemy. Before the battle, he even actually had, he was a bit of a musician on the side, and he had played Mayidish Mama for the Marines in his company. And they were very moved, and they allegedly even cried, which, you know, apparently Marines are capable of doing that too. There are other famous Jewish boxers. There was Ruby Goldstein from the Lower East Side, Sid Terrace from the Lower East Side. There was Slapsy Maxie Rosenblum, who was one of the few not from the Lower East Side. He was from Connecticut, but he was another popular and very successful Jewish boxer from that era. And there are, of course, many more. Um, so that's boxing. There's one last uh, story I want to touch on, and that's never spoken about. I just found it to be... Uh, an interesting angle as well is Jewish athletes who were Holocaust victims. Why is that a unique story? Um, Because sports stars are considered both famous, they're celebrities on one hand, and on the other hand, they're also considered strong and athletic and powerful. So I think it's very powerful to hear in a way how these celebrity famous people who were also strong and athletic, they became just another Jewish victim of the Nazi Holocaust and from the Nazi point of view and the Nazi racial uh, view, they were just uh, another Jew. And there was quite a few of them. There was quite a few of these Jewish sports stars who were killed by the Nazis. I just want to sh- mention short profiles of several of them. Perhaps the most famous one was Eddie Hamel. Eddie Hamel was one of the only U.S. citizens killed in the Holocaust. There were a few, but he was one of the only American citizens killed in the Holocaust. He was born in New York. His parents were Dutch immigrants, so he moved back to the Netherlands, where his parents were from at some point. He become this, becomes this incredible soccer star. Of course, in Europe, it's called football. 
and he joins the Dutch national team, the Ajax, and um, and he is the star of the team. He was very popular and enjoyed, enjoyed a very successful career. And he retired at the end of his career. He got married, he had a family, and he lived in Amsterdam. And he's deported to Auschwitz uh, during the Holocaust. He passed the initial selexia, but uh, he got an infection in his mouth, and he did not pass the next selexia, and was sent to the gas chambers where he was killed. Once we mentioned Holland, so the Dutch gymnastics team, the women gymnastics team from the 1928 Olympics, there were five women on that team who won the gold. They won the gold. I forgot to mention that part. Um, the five women on the team were Jewish. Helena Leah Nordheim, Annas Polak, Estella Agstribe, and Judik Simmons, and Elka De, Elka DeLevy. The team's trainer, Garrett Clearkoper, was also Jewish uh, as well. Uh, so the team won gold. Uh, in the and the Olympics were in Amsterdam actually in 1928 and in May 1940 the Germans occupy the Netherlands and from the summer of 1942 the Dutch Jews are brought to the Westerberg transit camp and from there they're deported to the east to the death camps and among the deportees were four out of the five uh, Dutch women from the gymnastics team that had represented the Netherlands at the the uh, Olympics, and won gold, and their trainer, this Jewish guy also. The women were already in their 30s. They were married with children, with families. So Judith Simons, Helen Nordheim, and Anna Pollock, and the trainer, Garrett Clearkoper, were deported from the Westerbork transit camp in Holland to the Sobibor death camp in eastern Poland, where they were gassed upon arrival, sharing the fate of most of Dutch Jewry. Estella Ostergrib was killed in Auschwitz, and Elka DeLevy managed to survive the war. She was the only one of the bunch to survive the war. She hid in the Netherlands. Uh, Józef Klotz was a Polish Jew from Krakow, also a soccer player, which is an American name for the sport. In Europe, like I said, it's called football. He played on the Polish national team. He even got the first goal ever of the Polish national team in a match against Sweden in the early 20s. He also played on Jewish uh, soccer teams in Krakow, then on Maccabi Warsha. He played on the Maccabi Warsha team, which was one of the best Jewish teams in Poland. He was killed in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1941. Leon Sperling was another Jew from Krakow who actually made it onto a Polish team, Krakowia. He was also on the Polish national team including an Olympic appearance of the Polish national team in the 1924 Paris Olympics, and he was killed by the Nazis in the Lvov Ghetto in 1941. Another one is another boxer, actually, Victor Perez, a Tunisian Sephardic Jew, uh, was a boxer. He lived in Paris, where he became the world champion of his weight division. I think he was lightweight. Um, he was captured by the Nazis in 1943 in Paris and sent to the Drancey uh, transit camp outside of Paris, where he was deported to Auschwitz. He survived two years in Auschwitz and was forced by the Nazis to participate in boxing matches to amuse the SS guards and the officers. And then he was sent on a death march uh, at the end of the war with the other prisoners of Auschwitz-Birkenau, and he ended up in another concentration camp in Gleiwitz towards the end of the war. And a few days after they arrived there, after the death march, he found some bread in the kitchen in this concentration camp, and Victor Perez tried to smuggle it out to distribute it to other starving prisoners. And he was caught in the act, sharing bread with other prisoners that he stole, and he was caught and shot dead by the Nazis in January 1945. 
Janos Garay, Oskar Gerde, and Attila Petschauer were three Hungarian Jewish fencers. And they were the best fencers in the world. All three of them won gold medals in fencing at different Olympics. All three were killed. Two in Mauthausen in Austria, one in a labor camp in Hungary. All three had been celebrated as Hungarian patriots who had brought glory to the country when they won gold at the Olympics and because of that had the Hungarian national anthem sung at the Olympics. And then all three were killed because the Hungarian collaborationist fascist regime did not consider them Hungarians. They considered them Jews. And they willingly went along with the Nazi plan to have them deported and where they were eventually killed. There are many, many others. Those are just a few, um, which I found to be an interesting story as well. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.